Let's, um, let's pray together. It'd be a great thing to do. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to start this book, this letter written by Paul many, many years ago at this church at Ephesus. Father, we pray that you will impact upon our hearts the lessons that we need to learn both individually and corporately. Father, we pray above all that you will grow us deeper into a love for our precious Saviour. And in doing so, we pray that this will result in actions towards one another and towards a, a world who is desperate to hear the good news about Christ. Father, we pray that this book, your word, this letter, will unite us around the cause of the gospel. Father, we just pray these things in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. The world outside and the world inside the church pose imposing challenges. And it's understandable when we wilt and want to run from these types of challenges. You know, the world outside continues to beat the drum of secularism. Politically, in the last year, our, our own local government has allowed wholesale abortions, granted the right for euthanasia, and implemented a safe schools program that fronts as an anti-bullying program, but in effect is no more than pushing the transgender agenda. And actually, it's an abuse. So how do I respond? How do I attempt to even fix these problems? The world inside the church is not immune to these same sorts of challenges. I'm talking the broad church here. Challenges relate to our views on marriage, on leadership roles in the church, on eldership, on baptism, on how things at the end are going to occur. These are all hot issues amongst the church. You know, even our roles on biblical counselling versus psychology. Creation, whether you're an old earth or a young earth or, dare say it, a theistic evolutionist. Hot topics like what songs we sing and even what Bible translation we prefer to read from. How do you respond? How do you even attempt to fix the problems? We may know what it means to face financial hardship and we not know how God will supply what we wish. Many of us here know what it means to face families whose problems run throughout generations. Unresolved conflict of bitterness and strife that just goes from family member to family member to family member. And we wonder, how will we make a difference? You know, let's face it, these types of challenges at times are, are far greater than us. 
and not just these outside challenges from the world or from the external environment or from within our own family setting, these challenges also reside inside us. If we dare to even question our hearts, dare to look inside and and see the sort of habitual sin that goes on, our persistent doubts about our capabilities to do what God calls us to do in our own homes and personally with our lives, and our own heart's resistance to the humbling freedom of the gospel. See, we face an immensity of challenges from both outside and inside. And it really makes us want to wilt and flee from God's calling. We want to cry out, Lord, it's just too much. I can't do this anymore. Do we feel like that at times? So how do we face the challenges that seem beyond our capabilities and resistance? How do we face these challenges? Well, I believe the Apostle Paul answers this question for us in the opening words of the letter we're going to read today. In the letter to the Ephesians. This introduction is only two verses long. So that doesn't mean you'll get out of here in two minutes. But even though it's a short introduction, it signals the response of faith needed to to meet the immense challenges of an outside culture and our inner heart. See, it's out of this letter to Ephesus. Paul has an immense challenge before himself. You know, he is an apostle, a, a chosen messenger of the Lord to the Ephesian Gentiles. And not only is his culture, the culture in which he's ministering to, opposed to the gospel, opposed to the message of God's covenant love through faith in Christ, but God's very own covenant people, the Jews, are opposed to the Gentiles even receiving this message. There's immense barriers of cultural, historical, and racial differences. And these things deeply concern Paul. And what can he do about it? The guy's stuck in prison some three or four, five hundred miles away from Ephesus. He's under house of guard. It's AD 62. He's, he's walked the life of proclaiming Christ. And now he's under arrest for for the gospel of Christ. And he's getting these reports about this beloved church where he spent three years investing. Out of any other church in the New Testament, this is the one Paul invested in more than any other. Can you imagine that? Would you like to be at Ephesus with Paul as your senior pastor? It'd be pretty remarkable, wouldn't it? But his heart is, he's in prison, he's under Roman guard, and his heart used to be with those in Ephesus. Let's just read a little bit about his final remarks to the group of elders there. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 1. 
just so you can get a feel for, for his heart for these people. Stand, let's stand and read just to give you a bit of exercise. Acts 20, verse 17. This is uh, towards the end of Paul's third missionary journey, some years before the time that this letter is written, Ephesians. Now from Elias he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You may be seated. Can you see the heart of the apostle for his people at Ephesus? It's a deep, caring heart. Even though Paul was incarcerated, he didn't say, I give up, Lord. The obstacles are greater than I. Use someone else, Lord. That's not what he said. He refuses to become downhearted. He does not quit. He recognizes that his strength And his strength alone to face these obstacles lies in the provisions beyond himself. His strength lies in God's word and God's will. So let's turn to the greeting in Ephesians 1. What does he say? I'm just going to pull this apart phrase by phrase. I'll read it in its entirety first and then we will look at it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints that are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. It's a simple salutation, a simple greeting, but full of depth. We read the very first phrase, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Please note the term he uses to uh, acknowledge who his Lord is. He goes, Christ Jesus. Christ is the Messiah. It's the word kurios for Lord. It's Messiah. He's acknowledging, you are my Lord and my Messiah, and your name is Jesus, because there's no other name under heaven by which someone can be saved. You think about Paul, you think about his, his history. Think about Paul's background. 
He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a zealot for law-keeping. He was a hater of Christians. I don't want to emphasize that much. But you can just imagine if Paul or Saul, as he was known prior to becoming Paul, walked into this church at this point in time, if he was under the auspices of Saul, he'd want to murder the lot of us. He hated the name of Christ. He was a murderer of all those who follow Christ. But you know what? A wonderful transformation occurred in Paul's life. And we can read it through Acts. Jesus, the crucified one, who is the Christ, the anointed one of the Jews, the long-promised Messiah, the one once dead, but risen alive with God, the king of the universe, the Lord who struck down a rampaging and murderous Saul on the road to Damascus to make Paul a redeeming voice to the Gentiles. Paul understood the eternal love of his Savior. And Paul was called as an apostle to speak and proclaim the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. Paul not only belongs to Christ with his apostolic authority, the words he speaks, the words that are written in this letter are the very words of Christ. That's why we can have such benefit from it today. When Paul speaks as an apostle on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Christ himself is instructing us. Isn't that a privilege? Now I just want to take a little diversion here. And I want to talk about what an apostle is. Because I think there's some confusion amongst the church about what an apostle is. And I think it's important that, you know, as a as your pastor, to, to give you some advice around what an apostle is and what it is not. You know, the office and gift of apostleship is much maligned today, and so I just want to spend a few minutes giving you a biblical framework for identifying what apostle is. So who were the apostles? How many apostles were there? No, you can't ask. <laughs> twelve out the back. Well, twelve. Any any advance on twelve? Do I have thirteen? Do I have thirteen? Do I have fourteen? Do I have fourteen? Fifteen? No, sixteen. No, we won't go down that track. The initial group of apostles, number twelve. The eleven original disciples who uh, remained after uh, Judas died, plus Matthias. In Acts two, we see the or next one, we see the appointment of Matthias. And then Paul comes along and he clearly also is an apostle. And Acts 14 talks about both Barnabas and Paul being apostles. And then Paul writes the letters to Galatians and he talks about uh, James, the brother of Jesus, being an apostle. As he says in Galatians 1.19, how he went to Jerusalem, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In Galatians 2.9, James is classified with Peter and John as pillars of the Jerusalem church. That sounds reasonably apostolic in, in nature. So that would bring the total number of apostles to somewhere around uh, 15. You know, 12 plus Paul plus Barnabas plus James. About 15. Were there more than 15? 
There may possibly, possibly have been, but we're just not told. Because we know that one of the marks of apostleship is that you saw the resurrected Christ. We know in 1 Corinthians 15, it says 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. And so from that large group, it may have been possible that Christ appointed some others as apostles, but we just don't have a record of it. So I would say probably not. God's word doesn't tell me, then don't speculate about what's not there. That's an important principle. And so what's significant about Paul's apostleship? Just look at with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Because this is where he describes it. 1 Corinthians 15 is a famous chapter on the resurrection. And it's a wonderful chapter. But at the start of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. See, we see Paul states that he was the last apostle, last to be called an apostle, last to see the resurrected and ascended Christ physically. On the road to Emmaus, at his conversion, the heavens opened up and, and the Lord cried out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What's Saul's response? You are the Lord. You are the Messiah. That's the appearance that Paul saw. saw. He, and also he states that he was one untimely born. So he was not one that walked with Jesus through his earthly ministry. He was not one that potentially saw the, the death and resurrection of Christ. He was post-Pentecost in that respect. And I think this, this text here teaches that there are no apostles after Paul. It says, for I am the last, last of all. You see, to be an apostle is, is recognized through Scripture. And if you move to, through Acts especially, you see an apostle had to be a physical eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. Acts one twenty two tells us that when they appointed Matthias, he replaced Judas. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become one with us as a witness to the resurrection. That was part of the apostolic office. You had to be a witness to the resurrection. Secondly, you had to be personally appointed by the Lord and thirdly, your apostolic office was 
constantly authenticated through Acts and, and through the New Testament by miraculous signs. Signs of healing. Signs of supernatural ability to authenticate the apostolic office. You see, in the church today, there's two quite divergent views of this, that, that, that this continues, that the apostolic office continues, or it has ceased. And I think this is where I just want to give you a, a word of advice and maybe a word of warning, especially if you, you hear about things like the new apostolic reformation, which some elements of the church are, are getting on the bandwagon of, and I, I think it's very dangerous. This new apostolic reformation uh, was being talked about in 2001, pretty much 100 years after the charismatic stroke Pentecostal movement started in 1901 by a fellow by the name of Peter Wagner. He was part of the third wave movement. I think they're now at the fourth wave movement, but this is at the third wave. And Peter Wagner stated this, a momentous change in the redemptive plan of God has occurred at this time. And he states that there is now a widespread recognition that the office of apostleship was not just a phenomenon of the first couple of centuries of church history, but that is also functioning in the body of Christ today. So what Wagner and his cohorts are saying is that there is an apostles here and now. And they formed an international coalition of apostles. And by some miraculous sign, Peter Wagner was the presiding apostle. This is the thing that really gets me. You could join this group, okay? You could join this group for the mere $69 per month. That was the membership dues, okay? If you're an international, if you want to be an international apostle, so if Keith wanted to be an international apostle, he could join it for $350 a year. Or if you're in North America, because there's more money in North America, it costs you $450 per year. And you could join as a married couple, if you really so chose, for $650 a year. So this is the type of stuff that's been going on. Uh, and obviously what goes with this is to try and authenticate that they are apostles. You've got this hype around signs, gifts, wonders, miracles, and the rest. When you go back to scripture, when you go back to what we've just read, when we go back to talking about the marks of an apostle, is that contrary to a mark of an apostle? An eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ, personally appointed by the Lord, and authentication through miracles. I'll let you be the judge of that. Not to mention, it seems, that no apostles were appointed after Paul. Because at the heart of apostleship, if you read later in Ephesians, and we'll get to this, I'm not sure who's preaching on it, but we will get to Ephesians chapter 2, which is pretty significant when it comes to the building of the church. Because the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In Revelation Chapter 21, this is phenomenal. As the new Jerusalem ascends out of heaven, this is what it says. Revelation 21, 12. 
At a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Foundations. What does a foundation mean? It's the beginning. It's the start. It's the foundation. It's the basis. And on the foundations... And on them were the name, 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I can assure you, Peter Wagner's name will not be on that list. I can assure you. Because God's word tells me it's the 12. So I think even Paul's going to miss out. And Barnabas, and Silas. I think it's the 11 disciples plus Matthias. Because that's what God's word tells me. Some here may object that Christ could appear to someone today and appoint that person as an apostle. But as just discussed, that goes against the very nature of the foundation principle here that is talked about in Ephesians. And the fact that Paul views himself as the last one whom Christ appeared to and appointed as an apostle indicates that this is really highly unlikely to happen. Moreover, God's purpose in the history of redemption seems to have been to give apostles only at the beginning of the church age. So, back to our text. Paul, an apostle of Christ. It's a high calling, it's a place of authority, it's a place of foundation. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. See, this is the great challenge he was facing as we've talked about. How, do, how does he encourage and exhort these, these wonderful believers from afar? And I think this, this phrase, by the will of God, this phrase is his defense, it's his offense, and it's his confidence. This is Paul's confidence as he moves through the rest of this letter. That it's God's will that one he is an apostle. It's his God's, it's his defense, his major defense that he is saved. Jesus has corrected him. Jesus has claimed him as his own. And Jesus has commissioned him as an apostle to the Ephesians. You know, he confessed that he was the greatest of sinners and yet he he could still speak for God because God willed him to do so. It was God's will that he transformed this man into the, the apostle that he was. And this is great comfort to you and I. Great comfort. Do you know, because when others know our past, you wouldn't really put up the barriers. Well, what right do I have to speak in their lives? They know how I am. They know what I'm like. When they know our failings and, and our personal history, you know what we can say like Paul? Were my speaking based on my doing, then I would have no right to speak. But Christ has corrected me, he has claimed me, and he has commissioned me to speak for him. Do you believe that as a follower of Christ? He saved you, he's corrected you, he's dealt with the sin issue. He has claimed you as his own. 
by his very will. You are his. You are a child of God. You have union with him. You know what? When we dive through this book of Ephesians, what do you think the most common little two-letter phrase is right throughout this book? I'm not going to tell you. Go home and do your homework. Come back and tell me next week. What's the thing that occurs more than others inside this book? Oh, I'm going to tell you. It's being in Christ. Now you go home and tell me how many times it appears in there. You are in Christ. Corrected by him, claimed by him, and commissioned by him to speak for him. You know, Paul also, from an offense side of things, had the authority to speak for Christ because of his apostleship, because of his office. You know, he had a right to speak given by God, and what? The Ephesians had the responsibility to listen. The same as we read God's word today. God is speaking through his word. We, the word of God has the right to speak. We never stand over the word of God. We stand under the word of God. Actually, we probably face down below the word of God. And God's word, we have a responsibility to listen and to obey. And we see his confidence. This confidence, not just in this way he's addressing from prison some 500 miles away, but you get a glimpse of his confidence in Acts 19. I encourage you to read Acts 19 this week because this is the background to, to how the church was formed. In Acts 19, a riot occurs because what has happened is uh, many start coming to faith in the city of Ephesus. And we'll talk a little bit about Ephesus in a sec. Many have come to faith. And the city was awash with idolatry. Right? They had made a temple which serviced the whole economy. It was the fourth largest city in the empire at the time. And there were lots and lots of silversmiths forming little idols. And people were coming in and, and worshipping these idols, you see. And what was happening is the power of the gospel started transforming lives. Paul first went to the synagogue. He saw a faithful remnant. He proclaimed Christ. He got a hard time from the Jews in the synagogue, so he went out and started proclaiming amongst the throngs of Gentiles, and this church flourished. So much so that many of the former pagan idolaters decided to bring their books and burn them. They didn't want nothing to do with the pagan culture around about them, nothing to do. They were changed people for the power of Christ. You read Acts 19, they burnt 50,000 books. Now, that's a lot of books. That's a lot of books. That's a lot of money in the ancient days. You think about how a book is produced in ancient Ephesus. You don't wind down to the local borders. Well, that's gone now anyway. The local, what's in a bookshop here in Australia? Hmm? Collins. You don't wander down local Collins and put it off the shelf. They had to be handwritten, painstakingly, no printing press. 50,000 of the things, high in value. But these folks said, I don't want anything to do with that. We're going to worship God. 
And this caused a riot because the commercial impact of this, people were no longer buying silver idols of Artemis. So the fellow decided to arc up and he hauled all the Christians down, down the street into a theatre, one of the largest theatres in the Roman Empire at the time. It said to 25,000 people, you'll see a picture in a sec. And for two hours, they yelled into this auditorium, Artemis of Ephesus. Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours trying to brainwash them. And what was Paul doing? He's been shielded by his friends, but his heart was he wanted to be there. He wanted to be in the midst of great danger. He was confidently saying, let me at them now. They're all together. What a wonderful opportunity to present Christ. But his friends had to pull him back and say, no, you can't go there. You'll be killed. That was the confidence that Paul had in God's will and God's word for his situation that time. See, the greatest confidence for him came from his own internal witness about the great power of the gospel on the claim on his own heart. When he was Christ's enemy, God called him. When there was no desire to seek Jesus the Saviour, made this Pharisee the apostle of Jesus. Paul had been transferred from one realm to another, and it was plain to him that he was not and could not be his own doing, but rather the sovereign work of God. It's the same for each one of you and I who have put our faith and trust in Christ. That transforming power of God's Spirit lifts us and gives us confidence to call out on his name and to tell others about Christ. Does this confidence fuel your life? Does the testimony of God's work in your life grant you the boldness and confidence to proclaim him? As a community, we need to be encouraging one another in this aspect. Encourage one another to be confident in the fact that you are a son or daughter of the living God. Christ is your Savior and Lord. Now, Paul has just affirmed the source of his strength in order to help us understand the nature of our opposition. Though it can seem overwhelming, it can be overcome. And the next phrase we have, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful believers in Christ. So he identifies finally where the letter's going to. It's Ephesus. You've had some introduction to Ephesus as I've talked to you this morning. I just want to give you some other highlights. This culture of Ephesus was saturated with perverse sin. That'd be an astute way to describe Ephesus. The name means desirable. Ephesus means desirable, and it fits well with the renowned sensuality of the ancient city. Culturally, the city was political in nature, but due to the Roman influence, it was military in practice. The fourth largest city, as I've mentioned, of the Roman Empire, the most accessible city by land and sea. There's a big harbour. It's no longer there. It's been silted up, but there's a big harbour. And then there was the, the uh, Roman road. So east, meant east met west in Ephesus. About 350,000 people was the population. That's a large city. And there were some key buildings and some key landmarks, and I'll just show you some of these just for interest's sake. Um, that's the renowned temple. 
<laughs> today. Uh, that, that's the site of, of the temple of Artemis. You see, there was a synagogue there. There was a school of Tyranius, a place of learning in the temple of Artemis. This was known at the time as the seventh wonder of the world. It doesn't look too wonderful today, but it was quite lavish. It was about four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens and was richly decorated with works of great painters and sculptors of the age. This here is the theatre, which I talked about, where they, the riot happened and they pulled people down into the theatre. You can see it's a natural amphitheatre, seated around 25,000 people. And this is who they worshipped. Artemis, or Diana. She was the daughter of Zeus and Leto and the twin sister of Apollo, in case you were interested. And the temple provided a refuge for criminals and houses of prostitution surrounded the roads leading to this temple. So hence the comments about sensuality and etc. The place was awash with prostitution. A large portion of the city worshipped this god. Pretty grotesque really, isn't it? And also many travellers came to this town to do the same. Hence the silversmiths, hence the idolatry, hence the, uh, the impact actually of the gospel on this place because it turned things upside down. The culture was tr- transient and bent on pleasure-seeking as the city infrastructure dictates, it had theatres, it had temples, it had bars, it had gyms, it had brothels. This is an interesting, that's the road. It's a beautiful marble street. It goes down the centre of Ephesus. But this here is really fascinating. They found this recently. Can you see that? You've got a, a foot, a left foot. You can tell it's a left foot, right? There's a big toes on the right-hand side. You've got uh, a love heart up on the top left-hand side. And you can vaguely see a face of a woman on the right-hand side. Right? This is your modern day advertisement in Ephesus in AD 62. What do you think it's advertising? What do you think it's advertising? See, this particular thing was found strategically located near the corner of the city's two main thoroughfares. It's carved into a marble road. <laughs> that must have taken some time. It features the outline of a left foot, the head of a woman, and a heart, indicating that any patron that should pass that way could turn left here to find a woman eager for love. Okay? It's your modern-day Vegas advertising. That's what dictated the culture of Ephesus. And Paul says, you are saints. You are saints in this culture. And because of the culture, the challenges for the Christian in Ephesus were massive. The economy and culture of the entire region were as were murder, materialism, sensuality, idolatrous diversions, 
as with any modern city. You could have called this city Melbourne. Nothing changes. And Paul calls the believers saints. The basic idea of a saint is someone who is consecrated to God. We have that through the Old Testament. Someone who is set apart for his purposes. And the idea is that they have the position of saints and they were exhorted to act in this way. So the title of saints, you are a saint, now act this way. Because the culture was continually fighting against their calling. Being a saint, a called out one, does not allow the person to claim divinity. The title appears to all believers, notice it's to all the saints, all those who have faith in Christ, because you have here saints and faithful tied together. It's incredible to think that Paul calls these folks holy ones in a place where politics, philosophy, economics and religion all intertwined uh, capture a very pervasive culture. It's not only a question for Paul's day, but it's a question for our day. Because when we consider the, the sin around about us, we may too wonder, can there be any holy ones where we live? On a practical level, we'd probably have to say no. Because see the effect of culture within the church and within our daily practice. We as Christians at times misplace our priorities about work, about money, about family. In a culture where sin is so pervasive, there is none who are untouched. But, here's the great news, but, 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 that does not mean sin cannot be overpowered. By some measure, this battle will always feel overwhelming, but through the gospel, we should realize that we can overcome. Because Paul starts saying, you in Ephesus, you who are saints, you who are faithful in Christ Jesus or believers in Christ Jesus, you, you are united with Christ. And this is going to be a major theme throughout this book. Though you have troubles and temptations, though you live in this terrible environment, you are united with Christ. You have a union with Christ that cannot be taken away. When sin is great, we prevail not by our own might, but by the virtue of the consecrating power of God that is ours by faith alone. And that's why he goes and concludes this salutation with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This salutation is not just mere rhetoric before we get into the body of the letter. It provides some great theological truth. I came across a new word the other day. The word was FOMO. Does anyone know what FOMO means? You can't answer. Do you guys know what FOMO means? Okay. Fear of missing out. Okay. It, it's, a, it's a short acronym for, I don't know, missing out. Paul does a very similar thing with the word grace grace is the one letter word that means the gospel it's not a one letter word that means hello how are you how nice are you grace has this deep theological meaning it's mentioned 12 times throughout this letter 
And it's Paul's desire that the Ephesians appreciate, accept, and appropriate God's undeserved favour and his grace. And Paul also knows when grace is understood as the compassionate and prevailing power of God on behalf of his people, then what results? Look at it. Peace. Grace and peace. From God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I asked the question at the start of the sermon, how do we face the challenges that seem beyond our capabilities and resistance? But the problems are so great, the culture so wicked, the church so weak, and the people so human, then what basis is there to expect any change, if that at all is possible? Paul the Apostle in these two verses teaches us the answer through these opening words that reveal the key to his power. Paul overcame sin, his anger, his murder, and his war against Christ. If God can do that in Paul's life, then he can be at peace knowing that God can overcome any great obstacles in all of life. You know, we can be at peace regarding what cannot be accomplished in our own strength. Because God's work is not dependent on human strength. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God's work is not dependent on human strength. We need not despair simply because we're not strong enough to overcome our challenges. When the message of grace is permeated into our hearts, which we're going to read through this book of Ephesians, when we understand the gospel, then peace will be the result. Human weakness is not the end of the story. God is at work, so believers can be at peace and keep going. The personal peace and the collective corporate peace that we can enjoy as a community of followers of Christ is provided by His grace and the power of the gospel. It's the hidden power source for us to walk united. This will be unfolded through the book. All that Christ has done, the power of the gospel enables us to walk united. And together, we can walk for the gospel in a world that desperately, desperately needs to hear. Take encouragement from these opening words of Ephesians.